1: Awesome to welcome College of Idaho head coach Colby Blaine to the basketball podcast. Blaine recently helped lead College of Idaho for, to the 2022-23 NAIA Men's Basketball National Championship for the second national title in program history. Blaine earlier that year was named the Cascade Collegiate Conference Coach of the Year for the third time, the most in program history. He helped lead the Yotes on a school record 36-game winning streak and set other program records for wins, 36. Points scored, field goals made, field goals attempted, scoring margin, and tied the school record for scoring defense. Blaine is also the fastest coach in program history to reach the 100 win mark. Colby, welcome to the basketball podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Well, what a year. And, uh, you know, what a job you've done with the program there at the College of Idaho and 2022 uh, 23 NAR. NAIA, Men's National Champions. And, uh, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, it was a process to get there, but uh, what a run. And you guys played so well, obviously, in the championship game as well.
0: Yeah, you know, we've been building over the years. 2017-18, we made the Final Four. 2018-19, we made the Final Four. We were the number one team in the country when COVID hit and they canceled the tournament. And so we thought we had a good chance that year. And we lost in the Elite Eight the year before uh, this one. And then, you know, this season, we were able to accomplish it. And so it's been something in our program we've been talking a lot about in um, our guys. You know, one thing we talk about in terms of how do we achieve our goals is who do we have to become? And so it's really been cool over the last couple of years to see this squad this year develop into who they needed to be to achieve it. But I think at the beginning of the year, we didn't know we knew we would be good. We didn't know, you know how good. And it was kind of fun as the season continued to, to roll on. We realized, all right, you know, maybe we might have a shot at this. And then I, I do really believe by the end of the year, um, we truly believed in our hearts that we could win it all.
1: Now, that's awesome. Congratulations to you and the program. And you mentioned one of the things that uh, is really important to you is, is the emotions of the game and talking to players about how they prepare for the game and the emotions of the game. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because that had to be a big part of this championship run.
0: Yeah, I think. you know one thing i've become really fascinated with is how do we you know every coach wants to scout for their games they want to have a a pregame plan and over the last couple years you know as you watch game film and you start to try to figure out what's important you know you can spend all day trying to figure out what another team's sets are and what their actions are Um, and and one thing that we've come to realize is that if we can actually prep our players for how they're going to feel each game and then, maybe more specifically, how they're going to feel in each type of situation. Maybe it be ball screen defense, you know, post defense, you know, whatever it might be. We actually feel like we're a better team when we prep for the emotion than when we prep for their actions. And so, for example, this year, uh, the team that I got to coach, we were traditionally up at halftime in about 95% of our games this year. You know, out of the 38 games we played, I think we were up uh, 35 times, you know, whether it be two points or 15 points. And so one thing we would talk about at halftime all the time is momentum. All right. Second half, the other team has to come back. They've got to do something to come back. And so we would always, you know, take a big, deep breath, you know, if they started to come back because we understood that that's supposed to happen. And you saw it in our final two games. We were up, uh, you know, roughly 20 points in the second half, both on Ottawa and on Indiana Tech, and they both came back because they're good teams. They needed to play a little faster. They had to take some risks and they ended up, uh, you know, um, executing those risks. But one thing that was really cool in those moments was because we've actually prepped for the emotion of that, even though the score was getting tighter, we never as a team felt like we were broken. You know, if you were in our huddles and our timeouts, nobody was pointing the finger. Nobody was yelling at each other. Um, We were just talking about, okay, what's the solution? We know this can happen. And I really believe that that might be why we were able to finish those really close games.
1: So it it sounds like you're normalizing things for them to say that these are all possibilities and these are a normal part of the game. So we can handle this emotion. And then the other part is obviously, it seems very matter of fact about it in terms of you're removing emotion by talking about emotion. Uh, Talk to us about the process of actually installing this with your players.
0: Well, I think, you know, one thing that we study at the beginning of every season, you know, we'll probably end up talking about this a lot more, but we want our players to be conceptual. We want them, we don't want them to be robotic. Robotic teams can win games early in the year. By the end of the year, you know, you've got to be able to read and react and, and make your own decisions. And so we really spend a lot of time off the court helping our guys grow as individuals. And, uh, you know, one topic that's really come up in our in our conversations over the last couple of years is where does stress come from? Stress comes from the unknown. That's what we've found in our research and our readings and and things that we've um done as a team. It's the uncertainty in front of you. It's the unknown in front of you. And so we really feel as a coaching staff, it's our job to help take the stress out of the game. There's already going to be plenty there by making and missing shots or, you know, whatever, just the intensity of the crowd and the game. Um and so that's why we've actually moved more towards we believe that if we can educate them on the emotions of the game, that might actually take some of the stress off of them because they then they can look at each other during the middle of the game and say, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. It's okay. You know? Whereas I've had my first year, we had a game um, where we got uh, uh, pressed and we didn't, we weren't aware of how it was going to make us feel. And I was at conflict with my two best guards. You know, we were getting after each other because I didn't understand how they were feeling and they didn't understand how we were feeling as a team. And so that's where it really came about five years ago. We learned um, that we just all needed to be prepared for for how to deal with that. But it kind of comes back to that big, we've got to be conceptual in our ability to the game
1: well i love that i love that explanation as well and you mentioned the scout part of this is like scout to prepare for the emotion of the game you mentioned press what are some other things that you feel that you have to prepare for is it a team that plays a slower pace a faster pace what are some other things
0: yeah i mean there's the simple uh concepts as always you know informing them of what the ball screen defense is going to be and what the post defense is going to be, because we're always playing in those actions Um, And so that's very simple. But then it gets down to, you know, in the last game, we kind of chuckle as a staff when we think about this one, Um, Indiana Tech had a really good guard. His first name was Grant, Um, long, uh, you know, scoring guard. And one thing we noticed as a staff was that he shot fakes every time he catches the ball. And if you watch the Final Four game, he probably executed about five or six shot fakes, which turned into emotional plays where Indiana Tech got a big bucket. And they were they were feeling the momentum, and and Georgetown was a little down and out about it. And uh, so it's even little things about that. We so we didn't worry about all their actions. Every time that he catched the ball in the championship game, we were yelling, "Shot fake, stay down, stay down." You know, we have a team in our league who likes to um, cross on their free throw uh, on free throw blockouts. They're very aggressive to go get the offensive rebounds, and they have a formula for how they do it. And but you wouldn't really notice if you weren't really watch them but they go extremely fast. And so we actually scouted that um and showed our guys cuz if they get an offensive rebound that's a pretty emotional play. And so we scouted that with our guys. So even more than just the ball screen defense or the or the post defense, we are scouting do they play fast? Do they play slow? You know you just mentioned that. We have some teams in the league that will walk the ball up the court. And if you do that, the, there there is a chance that the score could be 10 to 10. You know 10 minutes into the game and now you're feeling pressure because you're close to halftime, and so uh, it's a lot of things you know we always got to pick two or three emotions that we want to focus on uh, for each game um, but it can go a lot deeper than just the the surface
1: stuff well i love that that's what strikes me is that you're going beyond the the, the scout of just saying just we got to box out because they offensive rebound on free throws which essentially gives players no information that they don't already know so you're going beyond that aren't you
0: yes well, and you know, you just mentioned blockout. We played the national champions two years ago, Loyola of New Orleans, in the Elite Eight. And they're one of the best offensive rebound teams. And so it's very easy to just tell your team you got to block out. But we actually realized, why are they getting the rebound? And the reason they get the rebound is because you think you have them blocked out, and then they swim around you at the end, and they go and, and grab that ball. And so we were we, we showed our guys like blocking us telling you to block out is not good enough you got to drive them if you have one of the offensive rebounders you have to drive him out of the out of the paint um and so it was even another level of block out was you got to drive them out of there uh, but if we, we it would have been really emotional had we not told them to block out or had we not told them exactly what they needed to do instead of block out
1: and, and then if <laughs> if they do give up a block out or they miss a block out and the team gets an offensive rebound Essentially, what you're saying is you prepare them for the emotion of that moment as well.
0: Yes. Now, so for me, I'll be honest, a lot of maybe watched me coach or whatever. I'm a pretty aggressive coach. I'm pretty intense. You know, I'm loud. I'm, I'm going to coach all game long. And so one thing that it's really helped me with is I have I now have something where I can rationalize where I where we're not in conflict because we both know. So, for example, in our national championship game, uh, I was talking about the player who shot fakes. We jumped one time and it turned into an and one uh, offensive rebound putback. And when that moment happened, I was able to look at my defender and say, hey, this is what we were talking about. And then we didn't jump again the rest of the game. So I felt confident because I knew that he understood and I didn't need to, you know, get upset. And so it's really given and and he understood, too, because he's seen it on film. So it really has given us, you know, it's taken conflict out of a lot of uh, out of our team to be honest Uh, which is great and uh, you mentioned being aggressive or
1: very interactive as a coach are you preparing your players for that as well the emotion of being able to handle you
0: oh yeah absolutely that's (laughs) uh, come to practice in october and november and um, and we get ready for it so i try you know i make a commitment to our team that i'm going to be consistent every day and and truth be told you know when i realized that we were as good as I thought we were, I put my foot on the pedal even harder. Like I, you know, my message was, you know, we're not gonna take any chances. We are going to finish what we started. And I really truly believe that um, players, young men and young women, they want accountability. They wanna be pushed. You know, I don't believe that, you know, aggressive energy is negative. Um, it's, it's, it's the words in, you know, that that's the words you use that make it negative, in my opinion. Um, and so just because we have an aggressive coaching style um, doesn't mean it's not negative or it doesn't mean that it's not a positive style. Our players are prepared for how to deal with those with those emotions. I agree with that. So I want you
1: to expand on that, if you could just a little bit more, because, you know, being intense is, again, I don't think anyone's saying don't be intense and don't want, you know, don't want a coach to not win. Be competitive. But how do we do that in a productive way versus an unproductive way is really what you're saying so talk to us about how you do it in a productive way
0: yeah well i think one thing that i truly believe i i just gave a clinic the other day here for idaho high school coaches and i actually have a hard time sometimes putting things in order and what i mean by that is like you know as you're building your program what comes first as you build your team what comes first i, I i'm I like to be so conceptual that sometimes I get in my own way because I won't just define it. Our motion offense, I won't define what our cuts is our c- cuts are. I just want us to play. Um, you know, and I think sometimes that gets a little frustrating. And so I'm trying my best to start defining, okay, what actually matters and maybe more so what matters first. And I truly believe after reflecting on our team this year and maybe some teams in the past, that the first thing you got to build with your team, and I, and I don't believe there is an exception, is the team's mentality. And, and I believe in an aggressive, cohesive, you know, team that 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 is going to battle and is going to, you know, be gritty and tough. Um, and so I believe that's day one of practice and that and you got to you've got to be uh, a tough team. Like we we like David Goggins here, uh, who is an author, you know, can't uh, can't hurt me and never finished. He's a former Navy SEAL and his whole books are just about being tough and getting through hard times. Um, And that's our mentality that we want um, in our program. And so, um, you know, we start to establish that from day one. But some other things, you know, in terms of how to not make it negative, is that like, for example, I don't believe in subbing people out on mistakes. Um, You know, we we have a pretty detailed way in terms of how we sub, but I think that eliminates a lot of uh, conflict. If I'm gonna play you, I'm playing you for the minutes that I believe you should play. Because I think that you can do something in those minutes, even if you've made a mistake. Um, and so, you know, even if I'm getting a lot of times, you'll see me. I'll get I'll get fired up with uh, our team or a player because I want their mentality to maybe take another step above where they're at. But I'm not going to take you out of the game um, because I believe that you can. You are capable of of uh, you know finishing your segment and doing something positive. Um, you know, and then of course. Um, I think it's a lot of behind the scenes stuff too. Um, if you're gonna be tough on your players, you gotta love your players just as much. And and we spend we spend a lot of time together. You know, we try to get in the gym with our guys and uh, we eat a lot of meals together. And uh, so little things like that is what helps helps those aggressive moments.
1: Well, I love talking about this. And uh, you mentioned substitutions and you use a subchart. So I want you to talk about that. But one of the things that connects for me is that using that subchart does remove emotion from a lot of your decisions as well, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, it, no. It's funny. Um, I picked up the subchart idea from my former boss Scott Garson, who had a great career here at College of Idaho um, and is now at Santa Clara as an assistant. Um, but I have kept the subchart um, for multiple reasons, and it's funny because when you do talk to other teams or coaches, and every year when you have new players in your program, you see the conflict that the chart brings. There are a lot of you know parents, players, other coaches who. We say, well, what if that player is playing really well? Why are you subbing them out? You know, and there is some merit to that. And I'll come back to that in a second, you know, or, um, you know, I just can't stick to it. You know, every, every game changes and, you know, there's foul trouble and, and that stuff does happen. But um, we've actually found that the benefits of the sub chart, which I'll explain here, outweigh what you think are the negatives. And so what happens is um, we played nine guys this year. And our leading minute getter only played 25 minutes. I truly believe, uh, a lot of guys played 20 and and our leading minute getter is 25. I truly believe that you can, if you're going to play as hard as you can, you cannot play 40 minutes. You cannot play 35 minutes and you can barely play 30 all year long. In in my professional opinion, if you're going to play as hard as you can. I also believe that for us to be a championship team, we have to get the most production we can from the deepest bench that we can provide we can you win a game with six players yes can you win 38 games with six players i don't think you can i think you wear out emotionally uh you know kids get into little different ruts um you get into foul trouble you hit different parts of the year and so for us to be a championship team we want to play eight nine ten guys And we want all of those guys to be confident. Well, what happens with the sub chart, we use it for the first half, and then the second half is a little bit more free-flowing. But this year, I was able to pretty much use it almost each half every game. Uh, But what happens is, in November and December, there is some conflict. Because just like any normal subbing, sometimes I don't know when they're going in. um, Their sub chart maybe got changed a little bit, and they're, they're a little uneasy about it. But my goal is every year with about 15 games to go, we have the exact same rotation and what you see when we get to that point. Now I'm I'm having conversations with our players in November and December like, "Hey, here's where you're at, here's what we're thinking." And there is conflict at times, but when we hit January and February, it takes the stress off of our guys. They know when they're going in, they know they're going to get a significant amount of minutes. The least we played anybody in our rotation was 14 minutes this year. 14 and a half, I think. And so there were nights where he played 20. But we're not playing anybody for just 3 or 5 minutes. That type of Playing time is emotional and it's hard. And how do you expect a player to hit a shot, you know, if they're only playing three to five minutes? Um, and, and so long story short, you know, one thing I see, I know I'm, I'm moving in different directions here, but as we get down the stretch, we do have the most confident team in the country because they know when they're going in and they also know when they're coming out. And if you watch our team, we actually have a rule that when you get subbed out, you go all the way down the bench, you give out your high fives, and then you come back to the beginning of the bench. We actually started that about four years ago. And so we have this real cohesiveness, and our team truly believes that everybody can help produce. Um, and so now, like you look at our offensive stats this year, um, we we scored the ball at about just, just shy of 50 percent from the field goal. Um, and some of that, I think, is guys are confident to just make shots. They're confident to make plays. Um, You know, one thing I see a lot, this is where the subchart helps. Late in the year, you see it on every team. A coach will play a kid who usually plays five or 10 minutes, and he'll play him 20 one night. And the kid will have decent stats. But then the next game, he only plays him three. You see it all the time on social media. You hear it when you're recruiting transfers. You know, coach was playing me for about four games, and then he stopped playing me. Well, the truth is, he probably didn't do anything. He just might be eight, nine, 10 on the rotation, and the coach just isn't going to play him 20 every night. But if you're doing that with the final 10 games of the season, you got guys checking in and out. Um, you know, you got guys in the locker room who are saying, "Well, I don't know why, I played 20 minutes last night. I don't know why I'm playing only three tonight." And so that's where our subcharts huge. It, it really helps eliminate the confusion, and it also forces us to play some of our role guys, um, even when things are tight. It's love love talking
1: about this. And, and certainly the NBA traditionally uses more of this subchart type of focus. Um, I want to dive deeper. Let us know maybe at the beginning of the season, how are you first establishing your initial subchart? What factors go into it? And then you mentioned tweaking it. Of course, you're tweaking it to get it to the right point. But let's start from the beginning about establishing your subchart.
0: Yeah, well, it's funny. I When we got back from the national tournament, um, I was sitting on my couch watching some of the NBA playoffs and I pull out a, a sub chart and I start filling it out just to see what, it, what could it look like with the guys we have coming back next year, you know, and, and we're losing, we graduate our starting two guard. And so things shift and, and so subcharts can already start, um, you know, and, and we do, I know we'll probably talk about this, but we do play a zone defense. And so there is some strategy about having the right positions in at the right time. Um, if we do get off base in terms of positions then sometimes we'll in terms of establishing it, um, that I guess that would be a big key is that we do have some strategy in terms of our defense that we want on the court. We, you know, we're in a two-three zone, and so we always need two guys up top who are lateral. Doesn't matter really what position they are offensively, it matters how do they move defensively. Like, for example, this next year, I'm going to play one of my fours on offense. I'm gonna play him at the top of the zone, which traditionally you would think that maybe a one or a two would play on top of the zone. But he's a great lateral athlete. So we need to have two lateral athletes in at the same time. We need to have two wings in that can rebound. And then I'm always gonna have a middle man, a five man who can protect the basket. So usually I sub my fives back and forth. I have two or three of them, and I just sub, sub those guys back and forth for each other. But we can, um, so that, that plays a role in how we do sub um, for sure. Another big factor is conditioning. You know, One of my best scorers, Drew Wyman, is a starter at the four man for me but his conditioning, he plays better in four four minute segments. I have another wing who, uh, Jake O'Neill, who is a very well conditioned athlete and can go for six or eight minutes. Um, So that determines, it's not that Drew did anything wrong. He might've already scored eight points for us, but I'm still gonna take him out at the, you know, the first four minutes because he's that rest and then subbing back in is gonna be better for him over the long run. Um, And so some of that plays a little bit of a factor for us. Um, in terms of building it. And then, you know, to be honest, I've really learned a lot about if I'm gonna have a confident team, if I'm gonna play eight nine, ten guys, how who do you pick to start? and and i'll I'll preface this. the The worst thing that I hate about coaching uh, basketball, it's not just college basketball, it's basketball, it's picking playing time. It's hard, not fun. You recruited every player to be in your program. You want all of them to have you know a great uh, career and opportunity. but if I'm going to have a confident eight, nine, and 10, then I got to start looking at how do they work together? And it's not even just basketball. It's, you know, if you look at our roster this year, we brought our leading scorer, our leading assist getter, and our leading rebounder, three different players, we brought them all off the benches. And if you're in the crowd and you're saying, you know, geez, how come you're not starting your leading scorer, you know, and your leading assist getter? It makes sense on paper, but truthfully, when you really dive into the cohesiveness of the team, and you you start to look about you know where is respect and and uh, where is trust? And you know, at the beginning of the game, I want guys who aren't going to be chaotic. Sometimes you have a playmaker who's chaotic. I'd rather have that guy come off the bench for me later in the half. You know so it's like it's all these little team chemistry things that make a factor in terms of how do we pick our starters and then how do we sub as we go through the game?
1: Well, I love this, and you've already mentioned like if a player's playing poorly you're sticking with them because it gives them the confidence to play better and to get through those moments and get through those emotions. I'm assuming the same thing applies to someone who's playing really well. But within this situation here, you have some flexibility as a coach as well, right?
0: Yeah, you know, it depends year to year or subchart to subchart. At the end of uh, at the, our final subchart we had this year, there were some spaces at the end of the first half that I left open. And my thought process was, whoever's playing well can get an extra two to four minutes. You know, they've already established that they're probably going to get about 10, eight, ten minutes in that half. But if they are playing well, I want to get that guy back in. Um, I did, you know, I have started to play around with playing guys for longer stretches. If you're subbing guys in, you know, every four minutes, it can be hard sometimes if there's no stoppage of play and, and just to get into a rhythm. And so we are starting to play around with maybe six-minute segments and maybe even a little longer. But. But yeah, we do try to leave the door open. Again, the second half is totally open. Like if we feel like we got to do something, we will we will stray from the sub chart. But what we feel confident about is that we didn't over, uh, you know, wear our players out. If you play your best player for 20 minutes in the first half, and then you're in a pickle and you have to play him for 20 more minutes in the second half, you know, we we don't think we can win a lot of games doing that. So we want to make sure we manage it in the first half. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. So for a coach that's considering this. Like the first time
1: they've ever used a sub chart, what is your suggestion to have something very defined initially and then gradually get more flexible? Or what is your suggestion?
0: Yeah, well, first things first, it is hard when you get into foul trouble. And I've had the luxury of having some great assistants who have been able to, they have a plan in their head. Or as the season goes on, I have a plan like, okay, we have this guy who can sub you know, we do have the luxury here right now with our team that we do have guys that aren't in our rotation that can come into a game and play. We have a big man, Tyler Harris, who is a phenomenal player, um, but he's not always on our rotation every night. At each Sweet 16 we we've played and he's played like 15 minutes because of foul trouble and he goes in there and he does great. And so so um, I think, um, you know, you're going to want to play at least eight, in my opinion, um, with a sub chart. Um, I think the goal would be to push to nine or 10. I think that's how you de- develop the best team. But you got to be ready that you're going to have some friction with it because things are going to happen. And so you do need to have a plan for how am I going to deal if I get into some foul trouble? Um, and it, it takes some time. But I think the biggest thing is you just got to commit to it for a little while. It's like you pick a defense. You know, every team goes to their secondary defense. A lot of teams switch out of their man to go to his own. They get a three hit on them in their zone defense and they get right out of it you know and if you just commit to it you'll settle into it and so i think as a coach you got to give it five seven games before you decide to scratch it um, and you'll start to see some of the benefits of it
1: last thing on the subcharts maybe we'll see how are you communicating this to your players throughout the year their positioning within the subchart
0: yeah when we first started it to be honest we didn't necessarily want our guys to know we had it, you know, I kind of hit it in my jacket. And you don't really want to know. And then of course, the word gets out. And uh, at the end of the day, like I tell my guys all the time, if I can't tell you the truth, if we can't be a mature group, we can't go where we want. to go. And so we just talk about everything open. And honestly, we have a massive elephant, this big six foot stuffed elephant that goes everywhere with us. And that's the elephant in the room, right? Well, guess what? The elephant in the room is we have a sub chart. Now, they, our guys don't specifically see the sub chart before the game, but after about five or 10 games, they, they get a feel. They know where they're at, and especially those last 15 games. They could almost sub themselves in. I don't know why I don't necessarily show them. Sometimes I'll tell guys to take stress off of them. Hey, you're, you're going to sub in at the 16-minute mark, so be ready. But, you know, we spend a lot of time as a team talking about chemistry and sacrifice and those things. And so this is just another part where our guys can show that they're bought in and they just roll with the punches.
1: Is the elephant flying with you too?
0: You know what's funny? I don't know that we brought the elephant to to uh, Kansas City, but it comes on the bus with us everywhere we go. So that's awesome. Great. And you mentioned, uh, you know, building conceptual players
1: being a part of what you do. So explain that a little bit more. And then uh, especially in the context of uh, we'll talk about the zone a little bit, but especially in the context of playing a zone, which is uh, a little less conceptual in its template, but I'm sure the way you run it is more conceptual.
0: Sure. Well, you know, you've I always have believed that like, for example, if we're just talking X's and O's, we want to be a motion team because at the end of the season, how do you guard motion? Like you don't know exactly what a team is going to be doing. They might ball screen, they might post up, they might cut, whatever. So that's the idea is we want to be this free-flowing team. Well, in life, we want to be this free-flowing human being. We want to be conceptual. We want to understand things at a bigger rate. You know, you get a lot of freshmen who have a lot of stress and worry on their plate because they don't know what it's like to go through a college season. And then you get your juniors and your seniors, you might lose a game and, you know, they're not rattled at all, or they might have a hard practice and they're not rattled at all, you know, or they, maybe they have a hard day in school and they can manage it. Um, And so we spend a lot of time really trying to help our players be aware that there is more to life than you know whatever they might see in their 18 year old view and so some things we do like we try to read a lot of books Um, every summer we're reading a book Um, i'll send that out here in the next couple weeks and it'll be accompanied with a shirt and a little note about our mentality and um, i'm always i'll buy a book for any player if they if they want anything they want to read we'll we'll buy that and so we really try to get our guys reading and um, you know some kids want to read uh basketball books but i have some guy i've got two guys that are philosophy majors they wanna read things you know, outside of basketball, which I think is awesome. Um, for any coach that's looking for conceptual books, Malcolm Gladwell's books, um, The Tipping Point, David vs. Goliath, Talking to Strangers, uh, all of those excellent books, they have nothing to do with sports. I take every one of his chapters and I bring it back to our program on how can we build a more cohesive program. And, uh, and so it, really it's just making your players aware that they have to grow mentally just as much as they have to grow physically. You know, I see it's summertime and you see it online. You see it on every Twitter and Instagram. Every player's grinding in the gym right now. And you can work on your crossover and you need to, and you can work on your jump shot and you need to. But what are you doing to prepare for the stress that you might be number seven on your roster? How do you deal with that with your team? How do you become happy for your, your starters? You know, what are you dealing, you know, what are you doing this summer to learn how to deal with uh, your time management in class and your social life and like all that stuff. And so, um, you know, everything we do, we just try to, it's just trying to educate our players on how to handle their life at a higher level. And that all comes back to the basketball.
1: Hey coach, a brief timeout from the podcast to bring you the analytics minute sponsored by hoops. Alytics. If you watch a lot of basketball game video, like we do, you always see things you'd like to remember or share. Being able to capture, organize, retrieve, and share plays, sets, and actions with a playbook for your coaching staff and players will make your teams and overall programs that much better. Hoopsalytics now includes an integrated playbook organizer that can do the following for you. Add plays, including text descriptions, diagrams, other images, and videos from just about anywhere. Link to real-life examples of these plays from your game videos. Categorize playbook entries as plays, actions, drills, moves, and other categories. Add attributes for our different entries like man, sewn, needed to, etc. Start entries to feature for a team like things to learn before a practice. Hoopsalytics brings the most powerful analytics to teams of all levels. It's easy to use and affordable. It's like AI for basketball coaches. Visit hoopsalytics.com ball today. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball today. To learn more and start analyzing your games for free well hopefully those players are doing it and just not tweeting about it but um i I totally get it and understand what you're saying it's beautiful and uh, you want players to think outside the box is what you said to me so and you also mentioned this part about educating them with stats and then expecting them to freely make decisions so connect those two things for
0: us yeah so if i mean if you can probably tell in this conversation like I'm really big on team chemistry and psychology and the philosophy of the game. Like, I don't consider myself this wonderful X and O guy. Um, I think we have good a good system, but I don't know that I don't always feel confident that I've got the best stuff. Um, and so as we were developing our system, I'm always thinking, well, how do I, you know, how do I how do I teach? How do I educate our guys on how to get better? And one thing that we found is that using stats, using research, which Malcolm Gladwell, in his books, that's what he does—he uses research to prove his point. Well, for example, there is an article um, that I could actually get you if you wanted to post, but it's from 2015, and it—it's from the NBA. They started 2,000 or 200,000 shots in the NBA, and they. They found out that there's two different types of shots. One is an extra pass shot, catch and shoot. And the other one is an on my own field goal, which means creating it off the bounce. They stated that out of those 200,000 shots, if you throw the extra pass and you catch and shoot, they go in at 51%. They also stated that if you shoot off the bounce, they go in at 38%. All right, so right there, we already know, all right, if we want to shoot better, we better throw the extra pass and catch and shoot more than we shoot off the bounce. That's the stats right there but then we've gone deeper. We've studied what stats does it take to win a national championship? So we went back, we've got the last 10 national champions and we started their whole season, or we took their season averages and we averaged it out. And so what we actually learned from those champions was that if you wanna be a national champion, you gotta shoot 47% or higher from the field. That's, that's not me, Coach Blaine telling you that. That is proof if you wanna be a national champion. And so what we do is we sit with our guys and we show them all this. And so, okay, 47% to be a national champion. The article says 51% extra pass versus 38% on my own field goal. So now our players start to see, okay, if we want to be a national champion, we actually got to lean more towards the extra pass. Doesn't mean that you, I always tell our guys this all the time, does not mean you don't shoot off the bounce. If you want to win a national championship, you better have some guys who can jump up and score. For us, Charles Elzey, the MVP, Samaje Morgan, our, our uh, freshman point guard, Drew Wyman, those guys can score mid-range jump shots. But if you want, like this year, we won 36 games in a row. If you want to be consistent, you've got to play to the stats a little bit. So in the middle of a game, we might take three you know, uh, shots off the bounce, and now I don't have to yell and scream at you. Now I might be aggressive, <laughs> But now I get to say, hey, those go in at 38%, you know, and then you're dealing with the players' emotions. You know how mad players get when they miss mid-range jump shots? I look at our guys all the time and say, "You can't get mad. The stats show you that that shot's not going to go in very much." Right? And so now you that, there's where growth comes from. Um, so to be even a better offensive team, well, what are the three best shots in the game? Open threes, open layups, and free throws. Those all go in at higher than 47%. And so we use those stats to educate. And, and as the year goes on, that's where our guys really grow. They they realize um, how that comes into effect.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Great way to be able to connect stats to performance and uh, help players understand what you're talking about as a coach. And my other question kind of with building conceptual players on offense and defense here, um, how, how is, are your practices structured? Because I find that conce- people that are trying to build conceptual players, your practices are different than the traditional unopposed perfection drill type practices, but what is the case in your situation?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, that's, that's how we're always thinking, how do we become conceptual? What do we gotta do to, you know, in our practice to help them grow? Um, well, I one imagine thing, you
1: gotta play a lot of basketball.
0: Yeah, no, there's merit. It gives me confidence to say, okay, we can play some five on five today, mm-hmm. you know, and we're not wasting our time. We can teach while we're while we're playing. Um, But, you know, one little thing that we really believe, of course, you know, there's a lot of things we believe. You'll hear me say that, you know, over the course of an hour. We believe we believe. Well, yeah, there's a lot that we do believe in. But um, one thing that we know for a fact is that communication builds trust. And so we want our players to become great communicators. That is a conceptual part of life. The better you communicate, the better your life's going to be. And so we actually will open up our practice at least once a week with a game called Catchphrase. Um, which is a little handheld console, It costs about 15 bucks on Amazon. And it gives you a word and you got to explain the word to your team without saying the word, right? So we actually go two teams against each other. First one to three points, whoever loses has to run a couple down and backs. Um, Now, as a coach, you got to commit about 10 or 15 minutes to this because it can take a little while. Guys are having fun and gets a little goofy. But those 10 or 15 minutes are better than any other drill that I can do because you'll see our juniors and our seniors, they learn how to play the game, and they learn how to communicate to their their team to get the word that they want. And you'll watch our freshmen and our transfers, they struggle so bad to communicate the word. And so I've committed to this even more. We play it, when we go to the national tournament, they all ask, Do you got catchphrase, we got catchphrase, and we're playing that, you know, before our national championship game in our in our around on uh, municipal court. Um, so that's a little thing, is we add some fun into practice about communicating. But you know, our drills, um, you know, one of the first drills we'll do uh, in our first practice is a four on three scramble drill. So your three defenders are down a player and there's some rules to it, but they, you know, there's only a certain, certain amount of time and everything. But they got to think, you know, the, the they got to think, how do I take the three best shots away? How do I take open layups away, open threes and not foul to put them on the foul line? And, yeah, and I'm a down a player. Right. And so we start using those types of drills. You know, I've had a coach who actually told me they did not believe in. um, Advantage drills. Advantage drills means that one team has more players than the other. I'll be honest with the way that I want to develop our team. I like advantage drills because it makes both sides have to think Because somebody's open. Even the offense has to think, well, geez, we have the advantage. We've got four players. We should be finding an open layup or an open three. Um, and if you're not, then maybe you're not really thinking outside the box very much. So it's little drills like that. Um, you know, we watch a lot of film um, outside of practice just to show them concepts and show them how they're moving and and what decisions they're making. But definitely try to make it a little more free flowing in practice for sure. I love that. I mean, it's a little shocking
1: about that advantage drill, uh, you know, conversation a little bit. But you know, advantage drills. I mean, you got to learn how to not just create an advantage, but leverage the advantage, and then obviously the basketball is a game of opposite. So if the other if defense has the advantage or vice versa, you've got to learn how to obviously counter it. So uh, I love that it's such a big part of it. And and you mention it, it's always two way coaching too, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, uh, player, uh, players should be coaching the team at the end of the day. And so they're constantly coaching their own teams on offense or defense. But you're right, you can get stuff from both sides. I've actually had to try to learn as a coach. When you when you're in practice in october and you're playing against each other somebody's gonna do something bad and somebody's gonna do something good and i you know you try to you try not to pick on one or the other too much but certainly two-way coaches. sure
1: look yeah i mean you've shared so much gold here but i know a lot of coaches probably want me to get to the zone defense um because with jim beheim gone you might be the best zone coach in the country now So let's talk about it. What's the philosophy behind the zone? And, uh, you know, you've run this for such a long time to great effect that uh, certainly some coach in Canada has heard your name because of this. So uh, it's wonderful.
0: Well, I appreciate it. You know, it's every year we've run it for five seasons now. Um, And if you look at our success, it's hard to it's hard to say we're not going to do it again. I have tried every year to say, you know what, maybe we should do more, man. Maybe we should change and do something different. And then I look at our stats and I'm like, wait a second, what are we what are we thinking? Um, and I and I love the debate. Um, you know, I coach AAU basketball too, and I just I love the debates online about you know should you play zone and in in, uh, in AAU and in youth ball and and I I totally agree with the merit of building the player in man defense. They need to learn those principles. Our zone defense is based on man principles. Just it, we just happen to start in what looks like a zone, right? But then you watch the Miami Heat and here they are in the NBA Finals as an eight seed using a zone and their players are conceptual and it's making those other teams think outside the box. And if they don't think very well, you could beat them in a game or two. But um, we've really fallen in love with the zone for a lot of reasons. A lot of teams don't play against it, especially when we go to the national tournament. They haven't played against it. Uh, You know, you'll play teams that have only had 100 clips out of maybe 2000 that year on on their um, Synergy accounts. They don't, they don't have an idea of what, you know, what their plan is against it. We play back-to-back Friday, Saturday nights in our conference. And we found that playing the zone helps our, uh, our prep. Most people think that, I hear it all the time from other college coaches, the zone is soft. You guys get to be soft. And, and come play us. Come play us. Our players play as hard as anybody in the country. You want to have a good zone? You can't, you cannot be soft in the zone. You got to play hard. So it's, we're not playing zone back-to-back nights because we want to break. We're playing it because our prep for the next team, we think, is a lot easier. It's a lot less stressful. We're not trying to go over a ton of man action. There's only so many things you can do against the zone. So those are some of the things. But to be honest with you, the number one thing, and it's, I mean, if, you, if, if, if we all want to take our ego out of the game of basketball, let's just be really honest right here. The three best shots in the game are open layups, open threes, and free throws. The zone is designed, we have a guy standing in front of the rim, we are going to take away your open layups. Our zone, which we can talk about in a little bit, is designed to take away the three ball, because when you throw that ball into, this, into the three-point line, we are exiting and we are going to the three-point line. So you're not just picking out for open three. If you look at our three-point defense percentage, I think we were 30%. Um, we only allowed our opponents to shoot 30%. Now, if you want to win a national championship, you got to shoot 36. And we, and we only allowed them to shoot 30. So that's pretty significant. And then traditionally in the zone, you don't foul as much. Teams aren't driving as much and they're not moving as much. And so now they're not getting free throws. So they look up, they might hit some shots, but they look up at the clock and they've got 45 points with five minutes left in the game. So that's just the you got to take the ego out of it. The stats prove that zone is actually designed to guard the game of basketball better than man. And so I don't, you know, I, I don't know if you want to dive into the basic rules or I, I do. I mean,
1: just one comment. I mean, when you're talking and you've coached AAU and I'm coaching AAU a little bit right now. I mean, the the, the only issue I have with zone is the default to zone because you're not going to teach the game. You know. And what you said is exactly true. We're, you're teaching a man and you're putting him in a zone because all the principles are the same. And then the other part of the debate is obviously about whether it should be administered out of the game. And I'll tell you, I've been in countries where they administer zone out of the game and they're still playing zone. Yeah. So just focus on the solution and not the problem. And the sure. solution is teaching your players conceptually how to play, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, any the funny thing is go watch any good man defensive team. What are they really oh. doing? They're zoning, it's, right? Help side defense is, is zone defense, right? It's you just, know, in some countries in
1: the world, you are not allowed to play help defense until really, yeah. after 13, after 14
0: for that reason. Yeah. Um, but again, that creates a whole bunch of other problems as well. <laughs> sure. I think it's probably a better way to just say, we're, we consider ourselves a 2-3 matchup zone. We just We're just morphing. We're starting in a zone and it's moving to man. Whereas in man defense, you're starting with a man. And you're moving to your help side, which is your zone. It's the same stuff. We're just starting in different places, I think. So, you know, we have three basic rules um, that we started with. Literally five years ago, we gave up 51 free throw attempts to uh, Montana Western um, and lost by about 10 on their home court. And we were driving home and we were thinking, man, we got to do something different. 51 free throw attempts is way too many. in game. I think the most I've ever seen. but. Um, so we that literally, we took three days. We said we're going to run some zone, and we started with three, uh, three rules. Um, first rule is, in our matchup zone, never have two guys guarding the ball. So most times in a zone, the guy dribbles down the court, the point guard, and both the top guys in the zone are guarding the ball. That's a mistake. Now they have an advantage. So we want to match to their setup. Basically, we're set up in a two, three, but everybody knows who their guy is and they're basically standing next to him. So rule number one, never have two guys guarding the ball. Rule number two, always bump the wings. And this has been a funny one for me. There, What I call basic rules and then there's advanced rules. Our program here at the College of Idaho, we are playing on some very advanced rules because we've been doing it for six years and I've got four year guys in the program. When you start the zone, stick to the rules. Don't let them become too conceptual to start because they're not. you're not ready for all that. So rule number two is always bump the wings, always. The, the only time you wouldn't really bump them is if the ball is caught in the corner or maybe a couple steps above. As your team gets better, you will learn when you don't always have to bump the wing. There's that gray area right around the free throw line extended where you're kind of like, did we want to bump it? What we've found though in games is that, We'll make the adjustment and say, hey, don't bump the wings right now. It confuses our guys more. They don't play as hard, and we're less effective. So we actually commit to bumping the wings every time. Plus, in theory, it's going to put your best defender on the ball for most of the time, and it's going to put your best rebounders around the rim or your strongest guys to guard people down around the rim. So rule number two, always bump the wings. Last rule we started with, we have three days of practice, and we played games on it. When the ball goes to the high post, we yell match and everybody touches their matchup. We're going to play you one on one at that point. So you might be saying, well, what does that really mean? You got to touch your matchup. There's probably three players on the perimeter, more than likely, because that's usually what zone offense is. Your wings and your guards, if that's their match, they got to go out and touch them. We're going to play you one on one from the free throw line with our biggest defender. That's the goal. You got to score a contested two over the top of us. And truthfully, you know, this is what we always say when we start. We don't care if they hit the 15 foot jump shot. There are not a lot of people who can do it at a high rate. Statistically, it's one of the toughest shots in the game. And it's funny, like guys, some guys will do it and they'll have 14 points and they'll leave the game and they'll think that they played really well and nobody else touched the ball and nobody else scored in that game. And they're frustrated, right? But the high post thinks he did a good job. And so we want to funnel that ball to the high post. Now, We say we don't care if they hit the high post jump shot. But as you get better at the zone, we start challenging our guys like, hey, you can do more. You can take his mid range jump shot away and not get beat for the drive. Whatever you do, though, don't give up open layups, right? When you match to your guys, you got to stay in front of them. So at that point, technically, we are in man defense. Now, what you hear from a lot of our opponents and fans is they'll say all the time, well, we weren't sure. If you were in man or zone at that point, I hear it with the announcers on the all the time. You know, they're saying, well, it looks like they're in man right now. And I'm kind of laughing because, no, we're not. We're in zone at that point. And, but those are advanced rules. And as a coach, you might say, well, how do, you, how do you teach all this? And the truth is, you build conceptual players and they will lead the way. You don't have to have an answer for everything. Take away layups, take away open threes, don't foul, and play as hard as you can. That's it. I don't have to have an answer for everything that's going on.
1: No, and you mentioned those uh, advantage-disadvantage drills, too. Those help players figure out answers, don't they?
0: Yes, yeah. If you can get your guys playing hard, and like for us, one of our rules is you got to contest every three-pointer. Well, if you've ever read the book, oh, what's the tennis book? Uh, The Inner Game of Tennis. The Inner Game of Tennis, yes. It's an excellent book. It tells you, teach one thing that's going to fix 10 things. Don't teach 10 things, because you'll fail at all of them. So for us, we believe in contesting three pointers because if you're going to contest every three, you're probably playing super hard. You're probably running around. You're probably thinking a pass or two ahead. And so we get a lot of result out of just demanding that you contest every single three. Uh,
1: t- Timothy Galloway, uh, Intergame and Tennis, just a must read for coaches if you haven't read yes. it. Tremendous stuff. So um, so the high post thing, I love that. Um, I used to coach in FIBA rules, and that used to be anytime we're in zone and went to the high post, we're in man. Because, again, they don't have time to shift to something else anyways, conceptually. Yeah. So I love that. Uh, what are you doing against ball screen, which is obviously a very common way to be able to attack a zone nowadays?
0: Yeah, ball screens have been great. Um, we've actually simplified our ball screen defense. You, The fun thing about zone is you can find an answer for everything. I think that's a frustrating thing for some coaches is, they can't explain why threes are getting hit on them or, you know, how to guard a ball screen. You can find an answer for every type of thing. So about five years ago, we literally had five or six ball screen defensive strategies, right? If the ball was on the outside thirds of the court, we would ice them. Just like in man defense, we would keep it to the baseline like the NBA does. When the ball was in the middle third, we would just switch the ball screen with our top two guards. I mean, we we had all these types of... uh of specific ball screen stuff. But what I actually found was, once again, the more you do, the harder it is to to figure out all the time. And when we were going back and forth between our man and our zone, our, our, uh, our ball screen defense in the man and the zone didn't align. And I didn't like that. So what we've actually really settled on, and I really enjoy it, um, is if you set a ball screen, we're going to do what we call twist, which what that means is we're switching it. If you set a middle ball screen, we're switching it with the other top guard, which is what 90% of people do. But what we've learned is that you can't just switch it flat because if you're in a zone and they come up that ball screen and you're flat and they fire it to the wing, you, you don't want passes to be firing around. So what we've learned is it's actually about, it's like, it's a hedge. So we have our top guard run out, and basically hedge it, jump it. And what that does is it startles the point guard or the guard, whoever's got the ball, and you can't throw a direct pass. The other part of that is if he can't throw a direct pass, think about what the wing has to do to get the ball. The wing has to move up. He moves further away from the three-point line. He is no longer a scoring threat. So we like to do what we call jump twist most ball screens. Now, people do set outside ball screens. Outside ball screens are good action. It's very hard to guard. You know, we watched a couple years ago, Duke actually went to a zone for a while. And when people were setting outside ball screens, they would bring their opposite top guard all the way through the switch. Now, that's very hard. I always like to say this, though. I mean, we could do a whole nother clinic and I can show you clips and all this stuff on the zone. And and hopefully someday I'll have it put on DVD and and watch. But I always believe this as a coach. No matter you always think, well, what are they going to do? What if they do that? Well, what if? they still have to make the shot. So for us, if they set an outside ball screen and they pull up off the bounce and shoot a mid-range jump shot and it doesn't go in, even though it was open, I'm like, all right, I don't need to, I don't need to panic and do anything different. Um, you know, if they, if they can't make their open shots, then to me, I don't even care, to be honest. Um, so a lot of things you can do on yeah. the ball screen, but keep it simple.
1: No, I love that idea. The jump twist is great and don't let the ball go where it wants to go is another part of that, I'm sure. Uh, how about cutters? And that's another challenge that coaches always talk about with zone.
0: Yeah, you know, we have some really good teams um, that do cut against us and we scout that because it's emotional. Um, when the ball goes into the high post and we match, we are scouting, do they cut hard? And if they do, you might have to go with them. And so you, all of a sudden, you have your top guard is all the way on the opposite baseline because his guy had cut through, and, um, and he's got to go with him. And so and that's kind of the fun part is when your guys start realizing that they got to make decisions. We try our best to switch cutters. So, for example, ball goes to the high post, and a top guard and a wing or a guy in the corner, they cross paths. We try to switch that because we want to keep our guys in the same areas of the zone that they're traditionally used to. But if you can't, you can't. Um, now, usually by this point, there's only 10 seconds left on that shot clock. And so at that point, you just got to play hard and make a decision. Um, but cutters cutters are good action for sure. Um, cutters before we match, before the ball goes into the high post, has actually not been too much of an issue for us. We just let people cut, and we just got to make sure we know who our, our matches are in case the ball does go in.
1: So being this effective zone coach now, what do you like to run against zones?
0: This might be the best question I've actually been asked. You know, it's, this, is, this is the absolute truth. I don't like to play our zone defense in our practice much because I get really frustrated watching our offense try to play <laughs> against it. Our zone is designed to take the flow out of the game. Right. And so now I'm in practice and you, you don't pop the ball and you know you're getting frustrated with your guys. And um, so I actually don't like to play against our zone much. And and I don't know if I actually know exactly what I would do against it. I've never had a chance to play against it. Um but um
1: there's a couple things yeah, how about just against any zone you play against now.
0: Yes. So I tell our guys all the time, we don't work on our zone offense that much because I tell them, do the things that people do to us, hmm. right? So we just have a couple common themes. We want to move the ball quickly, right? We don't want to hold and stand. Um, you want to stay aggressive. Um, we, we actually like to transition in overloads. We want to run right to an overload. So instead of coming down in your traditional uh, break, we actually bring both of our guards down the same side of the court. Um, which is a, a an immediate overload. And so you're just trying to find that quick advantage um, to be able to attack, really. Um, what we do educate our guys on is the emotion of how the zone's gonna make them feel, right? A lot of, maybe a shooter's shooting three, four, three or four feet deeper than they normally are. Maybe the point guard's just standing at the top and he feels like he's out of rhythm. And so, you know, I, I just feel like if we convince him to stay aggressive, move the ball and... We also prep them for how they're going to feel. We've had pretty good success with it, to be honest. You know, the, the whole game, a whole other clinic too is offensive rebounds is a massive way to score. So you just shoot the ball and go get offensive rebounds. Uh, you know, that's zone offense in itself. I think as a coach, this isn't just zone, this is offense in general. You want to know your layup package before you start the game. How are you going to score layup? What are your actions? What are your sets? Doesn't mean you can't be a free-flowing team, but maybe you need to score two layups on an out-of-bounds play or a specific quick hit set to get yourself eight or 10 points in the game. Um, so that's, if we play a zone, I'm always going to have, what are my lay- what's my layup package? That's great stuff. And uh, you mentioned not wanting to play against
1: your zone a lot in practice. And that is a challenge of playing a lot of zone is that you play, I assume, against more man than zone. So what are you doing within practice to get your man-to-man ready offensively?
0: Yeah. So we in our normal practice flow, we actually we play against our man a lot, which we 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 used our man significantly this year actually. It was good for us. We had a couple we had, I had two guards who were super athletic and they kind of had that dog mentality, you know, and so you wanted to let them loose sometimes. And so we actually went to man and I had some wings that could switch ball screens and, um and here's the thing. Uh, I mean, take it or leave it, I'm not losing the game in the zone. If it is tied with 30 seconds left, I'm not going to lose the game in a zone. I'm not going to let you just shoot a wide open high post jump shot. So we got to be ready for man. We use our man a lot in the end of game situations. And so in practice, we play against our man defense all the time because we're constantly trying to learn how to guard ball screens. We get good at our zone when we start prepping for games because we do a 20 minute scout on our opponent. And so you're doing that two or three times a week. That's an hour of zone prep. And then you play the game. You get better once you play the game. So we might actually, we played Arizona Christian this year. We lost our first game of the year and they did a great job. Um, and we got tremendously better after that game because we don't necessarily just start practicing our zone right away. It's kind of right when we start our season. To be honest. Coach, I mean, as we wrap up, I, I've got to talk to you. I mean,
1: College of Idaho, uh, two basketball national championships, some other success in other sports. Uh, seems like a great place to coach
0: it's it's pretty special and it you know when you really look at the total success of all not just our athletic programs but the college itself you realize man this whole thing works together so we are a, a liberal arts college which what what does that mean it's a broad education right we have over 95 countries represented on our campus by international students and so what you get in the classroom it, your education is coming from your peers right and your professors who are pushing you it's not just about taking tests and and you know sitting and reading uh, you know exam prep all that stuff. It's about what are you learning from each other? Our staff, our faculty, our athletic department, everybody's moving in the same direction to help build a more conceptual being. It, we're not trying to teach you what to think. We're trying to teach you how to think. And the greatest thing that I you know we not only did we have basketball success this year, but we had a national champion uh, track star. We had the eighth. Rhodes Scholar in the history of our college, in Kaya Evans, she was a women's soccer player. To to earn a Rhodes Scholarship is incredibly hard, and if you ever get a chance to listen to her talk, you'll understand why it happened. It's because of how she grew to, to learn about life while she was here at the college. She contributes her entire college experience, not just women's soccer, on how she grew as a human being, and that's what separated her in the Rhodes Scholarship. But when I look around and I think, why did, why did, what helped us win a national championship? It wasn't just our basketball program. It was our faculty. It was our fellow students. It was our community that are helping our guys grow and helping our program grow. So this place is pretty special and everybody's moving in the right direction.
1: Well, and they have a special coach in you as well. And, uh, I just love how you blend psychology, common sense, and coaching, uh, just tremendous and uh, tremendous share for all of our audience. So thank you so much for sharing with us.
0: You bet. Enjoyed being on.
1: Get the best instructional coaching with immersionvideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then immersionvideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all-access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Casio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more.